Welcome to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast. I'm Jonathan Hall. This episode, we speak with Tom Wilbur, author of Vanishing Point, the search for a B-24 bomber crew lost on the World War II home front. Tom Wilbur's writing career spans 25 years at USA Today Network's Central New York Newspaper Group, where he won Best of Gannett honors on multiple occasions. He also taught journalism at Binghamton University and is the author of Under the Surface. We spoke to Tom about how he first heard about the disappearance of the B-24 bomber and its crew, the unsolved mystery of their ultimate resting place, and the largely unreported history of the thousands of United States airmen, and in some cases women, who died on the World War II American home front. Hello, Tom. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. Great to be here. Well, it's great to see you again. We, we worked in the past several years ago. Uh, time does fly. But you have a new book, Vanishing Point, the search for a B-24 bomber crew lost on the World War II home front. Tell us the backstory to this book. What inspired you to write it? So my inspiration actually came many years ago, as in about 50 years ago. I spent the summers of my youth at a family cottage on Lake Ontario. Uh, north of Syracuse. My grandfather built the cottage a long time ago. And growing up, I mean, beachcombing was a big part of our summer activities before the years of Facebook and social media. We didn't have a TV up there. Uh, Campfires, stories, and there's a lot of lore and legend in Lake Ontario. It's a big lake. It's a seaway. A lot of history, a lot of things in the lake. But one thing that I grew up with was the idea that there was a lost World War II bomber somewhere in the lake with a crew of eight. And back in my pre-adolescent years, this kind of seemed far-fetched to me. I always thought World War II was fought in the Pacific or the Atlantic and the Atlantic to a lesser degree off the Atlantic coast of the, the U.S. and Europe, of course. But I never really had this idea that there was this it was fought on the home front. And, and the other thing was there was really no confirmation back then that there was a bomber in the lake with a crew. Um, there were no plaques or memorials. And as you might know, and some of your uh, listeners might know if they're from around here, if you go up around Lake Ontario, the many parks, there's always historical monuments and landmarks that talk about the various historical points. Nothing at all about a lost bomber. So I was skeptical. But it always kind of stuck with me along with the various things about our cottage. The cottage remained in the family. Uh, long story short, many years later, as a working journalist, I finally got some time to really look into the story. And I, I did some research, uh, newspaper archives, some archival material uh, with the military. And I found out that the story was in fact true. Um, even though this was a story that circulated around campfires back in the day, this kind of like it was a ghost ship story. It was lost. There were pieces of it maybe washed up. Um, nobody really even knew the circumstances, at least in my circles, or even the names of the crew. But upon looking into this further, I found that the, the, the backstory of it was that it was a training accident that plane got lost in a whiteout uh, in um, February 1944. 
And as I did more research, I found out that this was not uncommon at all. But what, what really was particular about this was that all these years, there's a plane in the lake with uh, World War II veterans aboard that has never been found. And I started wondering, well, how, how, what has the search been like? Has anybody even looked for this plane? That's amazing. amazing. That, that kind of inspired the research and then the research inspired the story. Um, at some point, when, as a journalist, you look into these things and a lot of times there's a great rumor that seems like a story, but it doesn't pan out. But uh, this was an uh, interesting rumor that did pan out. It turned into a pretty remarkable story. Interesting. Interesting. Well, your book features uh, a whole bunch of things. Mystery, remembrance, lost history. Delving into the mystery angle. Uh, tell us what's known about the disappearance of the, the B-24. It was named the Getaway Gertie. Yeah, so from the archival material, I found that this plane took off from uh, a base, Westover base is called, it's in uh, Western Massachusetts. It was on a formation flying mission, a training, uh, training flight with six other planes. And they were going to, well, so, so back then you got to remember that a lot of the pilots going to war in World War two of course were very young they were rec recruited uh, very quickly it was in kind of still the early age of flight so you had a lot of the crews up until they went into flight school had never even been on a plane let alone flown one um, they're all very young and uh, so there was this rush to train them because obviously we're ramping up for when after Pearl Harbor um, we're, we're ramping up very quickly with all our material and human resources to go to war. So there were accelerated schedules and a lot of pressure for these kids, basically 18, 19, 20 years old, to learn how to fly and do it in a hurry. And not only fly, but fly in these massive formations, wing to wing, that really this style of Air combat was never, had never been done before, so they were pioneering all that as well. So there was a lot of training flights. Uh, this was one of them trying to figure out how to fly in formation. And uh, weather moved in and things came apart. All the planes in this particular mission got lost. They were flying over Western Massachusetts. Radio communication was nothing like it is today. Uh, it was very touch and go, especially with the bad weather. So throughout the night, the controllers were trying to rein these planes in and, and get the crews down. And this particular plane uh, ended up going, while well, a lot of them went east, this went west. They got completely disoriented. They ended up in Wilkesburg, Pennsylvania. The weather was getting worse. And from there, they were directed of all places to Syracuse. And as again, some of your listeners might know, that when weather gets bad regionally, it, it gets particularly bad in Syracuse uh, with lake effect uh, whiteouts that time of year. So they went from bad to worse in terms of being directed to Syracuse. And they missed their landing in Syracuse because there was by now a, a intense lake effect storm up there. And throughout that night, there were reports of uh, the plane trying to land anywhere all around the Syracuse area. It was flying very low, searching for a place to land uh, in Oswego and Watertown and circled around the Adirondacks. And um, as you can imagine, here you have the pilot, Keith Ponder from 
from a rural town in Mississippi until he had his training flights. He flew for a little in Colorado, had very little experience with snowstorms, let alone flying a B-24 bomber through one where you can't see and trying to land hour after hour after hour missing the, uh, the airport. So what we know about it, it was last heard over Oswego and points north. And the radio contact was faltering, so they didn't have good contact. We have a little bit of a transcript of what that was, but for most part, they were out of contact and then uh, never seen again. Wow. What happened after the crash? There was an effort by the U.S. military to look for it, and at that point, they weren't sure where it was. Uh, there was a re they thought it was in the Adirondacks. Um, there were reports of people hearing plane, a plane over the Adirondacks. Of course, after the, the news reports came out the morning after or the morning after that, there's a lot of people that heard something and they were calling in and everybody was sure they had heard the plane. So there's a lot of red her herrings. They were looking in the Adirondacks, in the, uh, in the Utica area, in the greater Syracuse area, and they did fly over the lake. They did fly over the lake, and they didn't really see much. And they were maybe hoping, maybe it was wishful thinking that it went down on land, and the crew would where the crew would have a chance. So, for the next week, they found absolutely nothing. And then a wing panel showed up uh, on the in Lake Ontario um, around the Oswego area, and. They thought, well, this is it. Here it comes. There's a there's going to be debris and a floatsome a debris field is going to be coming in. And they totally expected the bodies and other pieces of the plane to come in after that. So they were searching. Now, Lake Ontario in, in February has ice banks. It's treacherous. The shoreline's very inaccessible. It's not very developed on that east end of the lake today. So there's very little infrastructure that was plowed. So it was a, a job just getting out there to try to do any type of search. Plus, you have to remember that all the all the wherewithal with personnel was going over to fight the war overseas. So just as fast as the men and women could get trained, mostly men back then, of course, in some cases women, uh, they were being shipped out. So they didn't have a lot of wherewithal to look. But they searched around uh, the shores of Lake Ontario. And then after the wing panel washed up and nothing else came, they kind of said, well, that's it. We got to move on. And it was pretty well case closed after that. So for the next 50, 60, 70 years, this word got out. I guess people remembered it directly back then, but scuba diving was not a thing in the 40s or even the 50s. In the 60s and 70s, it became much more a thing in uh, you know, fresh waters. It became a recreational thing, and it became quite a thing in the 80s and 90s. So you had a lot of people that were doing this, they're wreck seekers, right? They're, they're pursuing this. So people that knew about the story, and again, this was not widely publicized, but the story circulated in people who were fishing up there and people who were scuba diving. And a few people in particular, John McLaughlin, who was a body recovery diver, um, he's now retired. He's still up in, uh, up in that area. He worked for the, it was a volunteer um, firefighter there, actually a fire chief. And some other people um, that uh, Jim Kennard and uh, Tim Kaza, who have the equipment, they're amateur seeker sonar enthusiasts. Um, some of them are retired engineers and, and they got interested in, 
uh, developing side scan sonar to look at the lake bottom. So we have these small groups of people. Some are war enthusiasts, some are what I call seekers. They're just people looking into shipwrecks and other things. Um, you have John McLaughlin, who was just interested in the history of this particular thing and a body recovery diver was doing it uh, just to try to recover the memory and the story. Um, you have these various people that have been looking at, for it on and off uh, for many years and then kind of ebbing and flowing, never finding anything. Lake Ontario is a big lake. I guess that's another part of the story. Um, I won't go into that too much here, but there's this over 800 feet deep in this deepest spot. It's over 200 miles long as part of an international seaway. So there's a lot of things in the lake. But um, you had the various seekers looking for it uh, unsuccessfully on and off up until the present day. And then um, I, this might be another part of your question. I don't want to get too far ahead of it. There, there's things that are changing now that make the story of the plane, the history, and the likelihood of it finding, um, it raises the stakes across the board because Eastern Lake Ontario is now being uh, designated as a natural marine sanctuary for the amount of histories in there. So you have, uh, you know, a federal agency involved and a designation that will draw a lot of people to that area to look for a lot of history in the lake, not just the plane, but you have a revolutionary warship. Uh, you have a um, uh, Cold War era defense project, the Avro, uh, Avro Arrow, which was uh, one of the first supersonic jets uh, and that project was scrapped and there's parts of that that are in the lake. So there's all this history, the awareness is growing and you have the marine sanctuary, which is now gonna make this more of a thing than it was when I was a kid and it was just a rumor. Hmm. Well, those are positive developments. Well, they're positive for the most part. There's some that would argue that if this fuselage is found and it becomes a tourist attraction, then is that positive? Maybe will it, you know, there's a lot of people that for either because they don't know any better or because they know better, but they want pieces of it, they'll loot uh, certain, um, you know, parts of, especially uh, a plane like a B-24 bomber, which is, there used to be many of them around there's very few it's very rare there's only two that are serviceable and flying now and there's a question of whether this will become an attraction for people with not with ulterior motives i see i see that makes sense so there's it's uh, you know the, the case could be made that just you know l l let it be and that there's there's power in the mystery you start off the book talking about the tomb of the unknown soldier and how the nation chooses to remember fallen and missing soldiers and honor their remains. Tell us more about what you discovered on that angle. Yeah, and, and to that part about the power of the mystery, um, I asked myself, is a tomb that's 600 feet deep or 60 feet deep any less honorable than a tomb that's six feet deep? Mm -hmm. uh, and of course the tomb of the unknown soldier is the classic example of whether it can be great honor to something like that. Although there is a 
formal monument. I, I called the fuselage of Gertie as it stood, at least in my youth, as the tomb of the forgotten soldier. Now that might change um, if there is some formal recognition that it exists out there. But there's something bigger at play here. And I think, by, by the way, that this is emblematic of something much bigger. And that is that this was not just a rare event where this one plane got lost on a training flight. Uh, during through my research, I found that there's this happened over 15,000 flyers between 1941 and 1945. So there's 15,000 fatalities during that time in stateside training accidents. So these aren't people uh, that died uh, fighting the war in Europe or the Pacific. They died just training here. That's, you know, 15, more than 15 fatalities every single day. So there's that aspect to it. And why isn't this remembered more? I think that, and how do we remember fallen soldiers? There's a deep meaning associated with battle losses, right? There's a lot of feelings that go along with battle losses. And the federal government, the Department of Defense, for this reason, spends about $150 million a year recovering the remains of battle veterans in Korea or in the Pacific or in farmers fields in Europe or in the jungles of Vietnam. And you probably, your listeners will be familiar with those cases. A lot of them are high profile when they recover a World War II vet in Europe and they, they bring them home. And there's a lot of uh, fanfare to that. I think with training losses, um, the, it's a different case. I mean, training in World War II obviously was just as perilous as well, almost in some cases, maybe more than flying in war, but the training accidents seem to be much less noble. I mean, they were mistakes after all. So I think just the way this evolved through the culture of military flight, and there's some uh, quite a bit of, I spend a fair amount of time discussing this in, in this, is that is, is, I call it the culture of risk, right? So this idea of flyers take risk, but when they mess up at home is a mistake, they're a failure. If they die in battle, then it's something different. So I think there's this element to it that, that goes along with how we remember the fallen. Do you think that'll change or no? Okay. I think it might. Um, I think certainly is if this becomes uh, recognized as part of the Marine Sanctuary, you know, I think change comes about slowly in the, the cultural changes, especially in the military. So um, I think I think that's a really good question. I can tell you from my research is one thing that I was attracted to the story as a journalist. It it seemed like I was breaking some new ground. So there's a lot of World War II stories and the, the war in the Pacific and in Europe are fairly well documented. The war on the home front, aside from, you know, the Victory Gardens and the, you know, other aspects of can can drives and Rosie the Riveter. I mean, those are all cu cultural touchstones, right? But the other aspects of what did the Swigo County look like in World War II? What was that home front really like? There's there is research on it, but not a lot. So I think the original aspect of this, there's certainly not much reporting. Uh, I mean, there are a few books and a few references that I cite in my book that document some of these, but nothing in the mainstream about the aspect of World War II that was here on the home front. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it's great you're breaking new ground on this. And uh, what were some bits of research that that you came across that were eye opening or you were really surprised? Like, wow, I had no idea. Yeah, I think uh, mostly that so many people died on such a regular basis flying. So that is first and foremost. Um, just the the amount of risk that these flyers undertook every time they went took took a training flight. The accelerated schedules, uh, I thought that was uh, remarkable. But there was some small regional things. Some are uh, well documented. Some aren't. Um, you might know that the military base in Oswego which is Fort Ontario, goes back to the colonial times. At the time of World War II, they were repurposing that as a school, um, uh, a training school for, for people uh, being drafted into the military. Um, and then later, it was the only, uh, only American refugee, refugee camp for, for people being persecuted overseas. And uh, there was a lot of push and pull with uh, President Roosevelt back then about whether they we should uh, have a refugee camp. And uh, the people in Oswego embraced it. And so there's like this little side story to that. Um, so there's a lot of little pieces, big pieces, but I guess those are, might be two examples. Uh, mm -hmm. other things that I found interesting. Yeah, I mean, the what you had said earlier, just the amount of deaths, the, one of the sentences that you had in your book that I was that was really eye-opening for me was uh, the U.S. Army Air Forces lost 4,500 planes fighting Japan over the course of the war and 7,100 planes in stateside accidents. I mean, that's, that's incredible. It's incredible. Yeah, it is. It really is. I mean, there's 15,000 deaths total uh, 15 or more a day. I mean, you could argue that they were dying just every hour or every other hour, just about. So uh, it is pretty amazing. And, and again, that's the one thing that when I have discussions about this with people that everybody seems surprised with, and it's not widely known. Yeah, yeah. Well, your book is uh, thankfully going to change that. Is there anyone that you would want, you know, in a perfect world to, to have this book or how do you hope the book will impact people's understanding of the war? These are, these are big questions. <laughs> yeah, no, um, the, the, those are very good questions. And I have a couple expectations for the book. And as, as I was writing this, of course, one of the things you always ask yourself is who is your audience and what are your expectations and what will their take home be on it? And I, I'm sure I will find an audience, I'm confident I should say, uh, with um, the war buffs, World War II buffs. There's a lot of plane buffs that are very interested. They, they're insatiable for the information about, you know, war planes back in the day. Um, there's going to be a, a tour, as a matter of fact, in June, where there's World War II, an air show in Syracuse. So you'll have all those people that are enthusiasts about this sort of thing, either war history in general or airplane uh, war and airplanes in general. So there will be that. Then there's this different group of divers and seekers. There are people that like to look for things, especially historic things, treasures, things that might be rare. The search for that is part of the fun. 
so rec seekers, you always, you know, I don't know, you're probably not as old as I am, but you remember the days of Jacques Cousteau and, you know, oh, yeah. the underwater world and the mystique and just the looking for stuff that has not been found. There's great mystique to that. But aside from those two groups, I find this is really a great mainstream story. And that is because even if you're not a, a war buff or an enthusiast, a plane enthusiast, or if you're not a diver, there's this element of intrigue here where you have this piece of history that's lost in the lake, along with a lot of other history. And there's a much more personal story to it. And the personal story, we, we haven't really talked about the personal story here. We're talking about the bigger thing that it represents, but are the crew members themselves. So I talked about Keith Ponder a little bit. Uh, he's the kid from Mississippi. He grew up in rural Mississippi before electricity, before indoor plumbing. Um, and I go back and I'm able to find in reporting this some distant relatives. So most of these uh, flyers, most of the people that fought World War II for a matter were young and single. Many of them were. And uh, they don't have the same legacy as people that obviously that had kids, kids if they died and they had letters from home and memorabilia. So these airmen left, you know, what they did leave or what is could be recovered are from great nieces or great nephews. And they're up in, you know, as I say, uh, trunks and crawl spaces or, you know, whatever. You know, like how it might be with a great ancestor somewhere, especially if it's a great uncle or it's like, what is this or what were they like? You don't really know. So I reconnected and uh, Buddy, his nickname's Buddy, is, is Robert Keith Ponder. He was named after the pilot. He, he's late father named him after the pilot, but he never really knew the legacy or great uncle Keith. We knew that he died in a plane crash in World War II. We knew nothing about him. So I was able to reconnect his history in Mississippi and share what I knew about the actual event. And I flew out to Mississippi and reconstructed Keith Ponder's youth during the rush to war and the eagerness as many, again, he represents something bigger to go and, and fight the war. And then at some point, once they got involved in it, it wasn't everything that they thought it might've been to begin with. So there's a story of him, the co-pilot and other crew members who I reconstruct by going back to their families and reconnecting through that. So getting back to the thing about the expectations for the book, outside of those enthusiasts, this is a great personal story about reconnecting with ancestry and also a minute by minute drama of what this looked like when these kids here they are all maybe less than a year flying a plane are now lost in a whiteout together um, they're thrown together as they were back then without really having necessarily a lot of common history and so i think as a narrative it unfolds with these different aspects coming together without giving too much away that make it very personal and and a pretty compelling story Oh my gosh, I was saying this before we started recording. You are an amazing writer and you, you just bring the reader right into the situation. And I'm really impressed. And, and so it is compelling. It is a, a page turner uh, and there is a mystery uh, and, and personal stories that you depict so well. So I encourage any listeners here to <laughs> grab Tom's new book, Vanishing Point, The Search for a B-24 Bomber Crew Lost on the World War II Homefront. It was great talking with you, Tom. 
Thank you, Jonathan. I really enjoyed it. That was Tom Wilbur, author of Vanishing Point, The Search for a B-24 Bomber Crew, Lost on the World War II Homefront. If you'd like to read his new book, visit our website at cornellpress.cornell.edu and use the promo code 09POD to save 30%. If you live in the UK, use the discount code CSANNOUNCE and visit the website combinedacademic.co.uk. Thank you for listening to 1869, the Cornell University Press Podcast.